So here we are together, Dr. Weston Childs and myself, Dr. Amy Horneman. We have so much of alike thinking that we decided to come together and do a very unique kind of style of podcast. We're doing a joint podcast. So this will be heard on Dr. Weston Childs podcast, which is Dr. Weston Childs and my podcast, The Thyroid Fixer. So, hey, Dr. Weston, thank you so much for jumping on. This is going to be fun. I think so too. And I'm happy to be here. I'm glad that you, uh, that we got in contact and it does sound like they, you know, as we were talking before, I think we have a lot in common in terms of how we look at thyroid patients, how we treat and, and what we think is important and so on. So I think we'll have a really good discussion here. Definitely. Definitely. So I know we both have our experiences. Do you want to just give kind of a little blurb on how you came into the thyroid space? Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, we were kind of talking about this before. Um, I actually, when I first got out um, of residency, I wanted to do weight loss. That was like the thing that I was like really wanted to do. And um, what, it just so happened that all the patients that I was seeing had thyroid problems. And so they just kept coming into me and I just started treating them and then they started getting better. And I, at the time I had no idea that there was, you know, there was this lack of people willing to, or treat them correctly. And so I guess I just sort of filled that space and then, you know, people started coming and, you know, I, I kind of said this, I think before, but um, when you help people lose weight, especially so if a lot of thyroid problems struggle with, uh, or a lot of people with thyroid problems, they struggle with weight gain. And right. so I would help a couple of people, you know, lose 50 to hundred pounds and they just walk around and they're just like a walking billboard. And so they would just attract more of like the same, same people with the same sort of problems. And so that's just sort of how it happened. Yeah. And then I just really enjoy it. I, I think it's a really complex um, topic. I think there's a lot of good things to talk about in terms of physiology. And I think it inter uh, connects and it interweaves with the entire body and other hormone systems. So it's, it's complex enough to, to maintain my interest. And I, I really enjoy kind of solving the problems that, that patients have um, and figuring out what's going on. So that's really sort of how I got into it. And I've been doing it since 2000, I think what I was saying, two, late 2015 ish or so. So we're talking, you know, five, five years or so somewhere around that. So that's kind of yeah. about me. What about you? So mine came through experience, of course, um, back 20, 25 years ago, I was competing bodybuilding fitness figure. Mm. And one of the shows that I was getting ready for, you know, I knew what to do. I knew everything. I knew how to eat and work before a million times before one of the shows I was getting ready for, I was putting on weight instead of losing. And mm. by the time the scale hit 20 plus pounds, I was like, there's something wrong. So just like many of our listeners, I was misdiagnosed six times and then finally diagnosed and stuck on Synthroid. So I gave that about five months and I went back to her and I said, you know, I've been reading about this T3 thing. I don't even remember the, I think we had like big gateway computers at that time, right? Oh, yeah. And very limited access to information, but I started digging. I'm like, um, this T3 seems to work really well with T4. Like, could we throw that together? She goes, no, I don't do that. I'm going to find somebody who does. So that was my first experience with kind of integrative functional medicine. Mm -hmm. That man who saved my life became my mentor and then brought me into this whole functional medicine space. So um, I'd be, I got my master's in clinical nutrition, doctor in clinical nutrition, and then certified in functional medicine. And now I, I do what you do. I love helping people mm -hmm who are struggling the same way that I was told, you're fine, you're normal, everything's good, your labs look good. I don't even know what labs they tested, but yeah, all those people just struggling and not getting answers. Yeah, there are a huge number of people. I, I think it's, it's a, a travesty just how many there are. And I think actually we undercount them. You know, I think if you look at statistically, I think it's like people will say there's about 10% of the population that has thyroid problems. I think that's of, you know, people that have grossly abnormal thyroid lab tests, but I think there's a whole, probably at least another 10% 
that sort of fit into that suboptimal range where they, they, they sort of get missed out or, or even you have people who have thyroid problems secondary to other medical conditions. So they have thyroid problems that may not be the first and foremost problem, but it still gets dragged down in the process. You know, one of the things that you, that you mentioned here, I want to talk about that. So when you said you were gaining weight, but you were prepping for your competition. So were you in a calorie deficit at that time? What was your, what was your prep like? And then um, kind of talk a little bit about that if you don't mind, because I'm just curious how that sort of worked out. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a definite caloric deficit. Mm -hmm. I, I would, if I remember correctly, around 1200 calories a day, which is super low. Yeah. And then of course you're doing, you know, cardio, fasted cardio in the morning, maybe another 20 minutes of cardio at night, that whole deal. And it was the chicken, the broccoli, the asparagus. Mm -hmm. Back then it was very low fat because we didn't right. you know, really realize the importance of fat back then. Uh, very low fat. So definite, yeah. Caloric deficit for sure. Yeah. So the reason I'm asking is because there's a lot of, a lot of thyroid patients and that's a very common story, by the way. And so if you're, you know, you're uh, a thyroid patient listening to this, it is absolutely possible to gain weight in a caloric deficit. And I think that's something that runs against the grain of a lot of, or the current thinking, especially when it comes to conventional doctors and uh, personal trainers and things like that, right? Mm -hmm. Their solution is to drop your calories and you lose weight. But the problem is if you continually drop your calories, you cause a lot of metabolic damage, or at least that's what I call it, um, which lowers your um, thyroid function, increases reverse T3, lowers free T3 levels and total T3. And then you end up gaining weight when you're trying to reduce your calories. And so that kind of sounds like that happened to you. Um, that actually happened to my wife too. Uh, we were kind of mentioning this before. She, yeah. she got there through um, an eating disorder. So a little bit of a different way, uh, a different path, but um, and that was when she was a teenager. But the problem is that this metabolic damage, as I call it, as I mentioned, sticks with you for a long time. So what I want to know, or you know, a question I have for you is, how did you fix that problem? Like, what ended up being like the number one most important thing that you did? Because again, I think a lot of people listening to this will have that very same question. So how were you able to fix your metabolism? Yeah, you know, honestly, if I think back, the, the key for me was that T3 component because uh -huh. I actually, through the years, I'm T3 only. So okay. I started off on Synthroid and then switched to Armor. And of course, Armor worked really well for a little while mm -hmm. and then kind of stopped working. And I don't remember if it was back in like the 06 kind of crash of Armor when it all kind of went sour, mm -hmm. um, but it just was not working for me. And so we switched to the synthetics again, T4, T3. And I want to ask you what your preference is mm. in the meds, but T4, T3 combo. And then just as we were going, again, my, my out of the box thinking doc realized that I had a reverse T3 problem. And I also had PCOS. So you had the high insulin, the low progesterone, a little bit elevated testosterone, but not bad. That wasn't the key component. Really the insulin mm. resistance was pushing up my reverse T3. And I just simply wasn't converting. Even when I would go down to 25 micrograms of T4, I would gain weight. If I would pull that out, everything would be fine and I would stay nice and steady. So um, I ended up on T3 only and I think that was the key. And then of course, finding the PCOS, addressing the insulin resistance. Now I eat properly for my body, which I always talk about with people. It has to be the both and. You can't do a diet over here whether it's caloric deficit, keto, Atkin, whatever, and, and, and go, well, that didn't work for me. Well, no kidding, because you're walking around with high reverse T3, low free T3, or an undiagnosed thyroid problem. Yeah, that mm -hmm. diet is not going to be the magic thing that makes you lose weight. You have to do both and. So then I got rewarded for eating properly, and I ate Normally, I actually stopped competing and went into powerlifting instead oh, nice. because it was much healthier. You didn't have the diet down. Sure, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I would say just getting that right level, the right dose, the right med for me to support my thyroid function and finding those underlying causes like 
high estrogen, low progesterone, uh, insulin, all of that that's driving inflammation and driving the reverse T3 up, that was that combination that helped me. Mm. You know, it's funny you mentioned all those because whenever you look at thyroid patient size, that's pretty common, right? Low progesterone, high, well, they may not have high estrogen necessarily, but they tend to have at least elements of estrogen dominance. Yeah. Um, insulin resistance follows um, and so on. And uh, same thing with my wife. She actually needed the T3 and she's on pure T3 only as well. Somewhere between about 25, 50 mics um, uh, around that dose or so, but it varies. Uh, in fact, I want to actually have her on to talk about how we kind of adjust her dose at some point, but yeah, um, yeah that's a, a, another, another story here. Um, the other thing that I was going to ask you about, uh, something that I have been doing a little bit that I've seen some success with is uh, reverse dieting. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with that term or not, but it's sort of the idea that you uh, essentially eat more calories than you would normally to sort of bring that metabolism back up. So if you kind of think about it in this way, if you are calorically, or if you're restricting calories, you're reducing those calories and your metabolism will slowly follow, right? And yep. so if you want to try and heal the metabolism in a way, you can increase those calories, which will kind of drive that back up. Now, the problem with that is you do gain weight. So I'm, I'm wondering kind of what your experience was. Did you see a lot of weight gain when you were trying to fix your metabolism or was it just strictly related to the thyroid medication? You know, what did that kind of look like for you? So we, it's interesting you say that because we would always do the reverse dieting coming off of a show mm-hmm. and, and, you know, coaches would always make us do that. So yeah, yeah well, they were kind of naturally doing it then. You're, yeah. You're kind of naturally doing it because you're yeah. coming out of that caloric deficit and you just want to be normal again. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, planning it out so that you don't rebound by 20 pounds was the coach's goal. So we would do the reverse dieting by gradually increasing the calories. Um, I just remember once I got optimized, I could stay steady where I wouldn't, you know, before it would be, oh my gosh, if I even just take a bite of a brownie, there's five pounds. And it's like, I felt like I could actually live life again. And that's really my goal when I'm working with people, like, let's get you to a level where you can go out to eat. You can go to the picnic, you can go to the party, you can enjoy Christmas and not constantly be anxious that, oh my gosh, at the end of this, I'm going to be 10 pounds heavier. And then we'll have to work harder to get that off and go to the gym twice a day. Like, no, (laughs) let's, let's not have you crush yourself to get off those 10 pounds. How about we just not gain the 10 because we have everything balanced and we have your metabolism working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that weight fluctuation is really a thyroid problem. I don't I don't know a lot of other patient populations that deal with, you know, that aside from like maybe heart failure, right, where you're retaining a ton of fluid. But yeah. I've had a, a number of patients who, who say that sort of same thing. And, you know, if you think of conventional wisdom, it's they would say it's impossible, right? Because if you want to gain a pound of fat, it's something like 3500 calories that you have to consume, right? But I, I don't think it's, it's quite that simple. I, I do think calories are important. Um, and I do think they play a role. But uh, I, I think more important is thyroid function, which regulates metabolism. Yep. So when I when I am interested, or I shouldn't say interested, but when I'm helping somebody who is interested in weight loss, I think that's one of the number one things. Um, I guess what I would, I guess a question I have for you, though, is that a lot of people, I think, get frustrated, especially thyroid patients, right? Because they hear us talking about it. Um, they'll, they'll hear us that someone's on T3 only. Well, getting on T3 only can be quite difficult depending on right. where you're at. Right. Um, so what, what kind of success do you see in terms of using just diet therapies and things like that or, or supplements, you know, other yeah. natural therapies aside from T3, do you have any success like helping people, thyroid patients specifically lose weight in that okay. setting? Like what do you, what are your thoughts? Goodness, definitely. So um, I'm going to plug your uh, thyroid adrenal complex oh, okay. that yeah, you yeah. have. Cause we, <laughs> we actually recommend that a lot. Oh, good. Um, Thank you. Because when I'm looking at other adrenal supplements yours just has that perfect combination it's like that is exactly what i want my people taking i don't want them taking a a ton of 
ashwagandha, you know, this high dose sure. ashwagandha that they they read on a Facebook forum. So they decided to throw it in and they don't even know what their cortisol is. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I love that. I do. I, I, I have a lot of success actually keeping people off medications if they're right on that border. You know, they're right, mm. Mm, the thyroid is just a little bit off. There's no antibodies present, or even if there is antibodies, we can still bring those down through through dietary changes and supplements. I love addressing, I always see insulin resistance in 99% of hypothyroid patients. So sure, yeah. when you really address that, um, my favorite is berberine for that. Mm. Berberine and lipoic acid. Love it, love yeah. it. That's funny. Yeah, I, yeah I, I love both of those as well. So, okay. So yeah. you're using kind of, you're looking, I guess, at, um, I guess if I, you know, could characterize that approach, you're kind of looking at uh, other hormone systems that could be dragged down by th- thyroid function as well. Right. Cause yep. a lot of thyroid patients, in addition to having hypothyroidism, at least this is my understanding of it. I, you know, if you have a different sort of idea of how it works, so let me know. But um, I am kind of of the mindset that as thyroid function gets pulled down, it is also dragging down other hormone systems with it. So in addition to seeing your low thyroid function, which will cause decreased metabolism and weight gain by itself, now you're also being, you're having your adrenals being dragged down simultaneously. And cortisol imbalance, either high or low, um, can cause, cause issues with that as well. In addition, you're seeing progesterone being pulled down, mm-hmm. estrogen may be, be increasing as well, or you may just have a widening gap between the two. Yep. Um, I also see problems with leptin um, and, yep. and so on. So I, I guess um, it sounds like your approach is if you're having a hard time getting that thyroid medication, you can at least address these other hormone imbalances. Is that kind of what you're thinking? A hundred percent. Yeah. Let's look at insulin. Let's look at hormones. Let's look at um, the zinc, the mag, the iodine, all those mm-hmm. nutrients that are so important for your thyroid to function properly. Uh, let's look at the underlying infections. I've seen bar virus, Lyme. Let's look at it all so we get that mm-hmm. whole picture. And I'm, I'm sure this drives you crazy too, but this, it drives me nuts when people will come in, patients will come in with half-ass Dunlap's. You know, they'll have, if they're a woman, they'll have estrogen, but they won't have progesterone or testosterone. Maybe there'll yeah. be an LHFSH in there, sure, yeah. you know, and the doctor forgets that they have other hormones or a line panel will have just one marker and it's, <laughs> oh my gosh, there's so much more. And so yeah. really getting that full picture and treating those underlying conditions that are driving inflammation that essentially that's what, that's what's shutting down thyroid function is inflammation. Whether it's it's your autoimmune, Hashimoto's, your immune system is just attacking your thyroid because it thinks it's an invader, a bad guy, or if, if it's just inflammation from high insulin, from an underlying infection, from an imbalance in nutrients, from your adrenals. I mean, do you see that a lot too? Is just those those core underlying conditions that are kind of inflaming the person to lower their thyroid function? Sure. Yeah. I think, I think inflammation plays a big role. Um, and I think finding the source of that inflammation is really important if possible. Um, I think sometimes when you're looking at it, it's hard to, it's hard to identify what's going on uh, exactly. Right. Because there can be so many different causes of yeah. uh, inflammation. And, and I think also it, it can be a, a little more subtle. And what I mean by that is sometimes it can be as simple as not getting enough sleep or, or having too much stress in the life yes. and in your life. And so, it, you know, I, we'll treat uh, I'll, when I, you know, I'm not treating people right now, but in the past when I would talk to them and I would, I would say, you know, here, here are your issues and we'll go through the list, right? We'll look for infections in the gut and we'll look for high, obviously high inflammatory markers, ESR, CRP, even yep. ferritin can be used as a non-specific inflammatory marker. So you yep. can look at these things um, and you can kind of get an idea. Maybe I can kind of direct you towards one place. So for instance, somebody has like high ESR and CRP um, and they also have like a lot of abdominal issues or gut pain or things. Okay. Well, you can kind of get directed to that area. Um, but some 
sometimes you can tell that somebody's inflamed. They don't have high inflammatory markers. And so at that point, it kind of gets difficult to figure out where the inflammation is coming from because they're symptomatically inflamed, but you can't quite identify where it's coming from. And so a lot of those times, when it gets to that point, it's like, okay, I think the best approach is to look at those lifestyle issues. And so maybe then it'll come out that this person's not sleeping as much, or maybe they are sleeping, but due to hot flashes or whatever, um, they're not getting quality sleep or deep sleep. Um, they also have stress problems with or, or problems associated with stress in their social life. So with family members and so on. And I, you know, I tend to see that very commonly among women who I think end up kind of I don't know how to say, I don't know how to say this, uh, the way that maybe in the right way, but it kind of seems like, a the women that I would treat, they would take on a lot of problems of other people. Yeah. So they'd have more than just their own problems. And so, um, I don't know how to quite define that. That's never really been my, my, uh, my strong suit there, but, um, I would see a lot of that. And so I think that that sort of thing takes a toll emotionally, physically, and also on, on inflammation. And yep. so treating those things is very important. Sometimes finding out what the problem is is also very difficult though. So I, I definitely think that infl inflammatory component is, is good if you can find it. Um, uh, I don't know, what, what do you think? Do you, do you see those sort of same problems like uh, when you're treating people? Yeah, and, and what I find is that women kind of downplay it. You oh, know, sure. oh yeah, I get enough sleep, it's fine. And then yeah. we really talk about it. It's like, well, no, you're, you're getting five hours because you're a night owl and you're staying up until 11, 12 and you're missing the recuperative time of sleep. And then, you know, you're waking up early to get the kids on the school bus. Like, no, that's not enough. Or they, they will downplay the stress too. Mm -hmm. I don't know, I'm okay. I'm just, you know, taking care of my elderly mother and I have four right. kids and I'm working. It's like, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> wait a minute. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, that, that caretaker thing is a story that I've seen a lot too, by the way. Um, yep. I've seen a, a lot of people who are their caretakers for either their, you know, someone in their family or maybe their mom or their dad. Um, they do this for a number of years and then that either that issue gets resolved um, or fixes itself and then they have a crash. And so yes. you have these people crash and then they're like, you know, I was doing fine up until 2005 after, you know, whatever happened, you know, I was taking yeah. care of my mom or my dad. And then all of a sudden now I, I you know, gained 50 pounds, right? And so the, yeah. body, can, the body can really rally uh, for a period of time when it's necessary. And so I find that to be particularly common among people who are caretakers of family members. But then what happens is it all catches up to you. You're going to pay the price one way or the other. Yeah. And yeah. So well, that's what I was going to ask you. What, what is it? You, you know, the adrenals a little bit better than I do. So what is it with the adrenals where literally it will get a person through, it'll get them through that caretaking mm -hmm. time. It'll get them through that stressor. And then after it ends, that is when they crash. Yeah. And, and to be honest, I don't think anyone really knows for sure. Uh, I have a theory uh, that okay. I can kind of talk about. Um, but I think the problem is, especially when it comes to adrenal function, there's a lot of, a lot of let's say, misconceptions and people are looking at different yeah. sets of information and coming up with different conclusions. And so it was sort of thought traditionally that there was this idea of adrenal fatigue, which is, you know, you get under a lot of stress, you have some impact, something happens to your adrenals, to your cortisol level, and that cortisol levels, and that causes a lot of fatigue or the, the symptoms associated with adrenal fatigue. The problem is when you actually look at people, you can have people with the same set of symptoms with high cortisol, with low cortisol and normal cortisol. Yeah. So it's really hard to nail down what is actually causing that problem. And it used to be that people thought, okay, well, in the beginning, your body gets stressed, it has a high level of cortisol that gets pumped out. And then over time, the adrenals kind of poop out and then it goes down, right? So yeah. it, depending on where you're at in this cycle, if this is six months or five years, your adrenal, your cortisol might be higher, it might be low, right? That's sort of the conventional thought. Uh, but the as I said before, that has a, it's hard to kind of prove that point to be true because when you look at people, that's all over the place. So I kind of think that it's probably more related to receptor sensitivity. And what, what I mean by that is it has to do with how sensitive your cells are to cortisol. So um, I think there are a number of factors 
that can influence that. And, and this shouldn't actually come as a surprise to a lot of people, people listening to this, I, you probably understand this concept very, very well, but it's the same concept that occurs with insulin resistance, right? So it, your insulin is there, it's just your cells are not using it very well. And we know this also exists with progesterone, by the way, we know this exists with leptin uh, as well. And so I think it probably exists with cortisol. So I believe that it's probably has something to do with cortisol receptor sensitivity, um, which I think is also why adaptogens and glandulars, which are uh, tools that you can use to treat adrenal function, yeah. they tend to work sometimes regardless of what your cortisol level is. And so, you know, you could have somebody who taking uh, rhodiola or ashwagandha for high cortisol and yeah. see benefits just like somebody who has low cortisol as well. And so it's, I, you know, at some point, I don't know that it necessarily matters what the pathophysiology is. I think we know what the treatment is, right? So I think, I think focusing more on those uh, treatment aspects uh, will get you uh, better gains in that, in that arena. Um, so that's kind of the way that I look at it. In fact, I'm, I don't get too obsessed with cortisol testing. I know yeah. a lot of people, I know I a lot either. of people do. Yeah. So I, I don't know where you kind of fit on that, that, yeah. that spectrum. It doesn't sound like, or it doesn't sound like you're in that. So what I'll, t what I traditionally do is um, I'll get a serum cortisol. Um, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of ideas as to whether or not serum is better than um, salivary cortisol, which is better than urinary cortisol and so on. So as I said, I, I don't know how much information either of them give you. So I usually just throw in a serum cortisol at 8am when I get their labs checked with the thyroid function. Mm -hmm. And so then you can look at the cortisol in relation to thyroid function. And when you do that, it's like, okay, now you have a, not, you have a starting point and that you have something to compare it to. And then when you retest at the same time, you can say, okay, well, what is happening with the cortisol? Mm -hmm. I have no idea what's happening at the, at the cellular level because there's yeah. no way to test that um, really. And, but what you can do is you can see, okay, is there improvement in the cortisol? Or, and does that improvement correlate with the symptoms that we're seeing in that patient? So that's kind of how I look at it um, or at least have in the past. But I do, I do think that no matter kind of where you fall, I think it's, or at least we probably both agree that I think um, ashw or, well, not ashwagandha, but adrenal adaptogens and adrenal glandulars are really, really beneficial for thyroid patients. So you yeah. kind of agree with that statement? Totally. Totally. Love them. Love them. In, the, in that perfect combination. Like I said earlier, I hate mm -hmm. it when people just read that ashwagandha is good and they go out and they just take that. And they, right. you know, it's like, no, let's not just throw high dose supplements because you heard it on Dr. Oz. Let's actually, <laughs> sure. you know, uh, yeah. yeah. Raspberry ketones flew off the shelves way back when. So mm -hmm. yeah, let's actually get that right combination to support. It's about like supporting the adrenals and supporting your cortisol function. And then it will naturally come back in alignment. Yeah. I, I think yeah. I see sort of the same thing. Yeah. Um, actually this kind of leads, leads me to another topic. I think I, I'd like to ask you, but what do you think um, are the most beneficial supplements for thyroid patients? Like, what do you see the most success with? Cause I have a sort of a list that, you know, and obviously we, you know, they're, they're, they're putting my supplements for that reason, yeah. but I'm yeah. just curious if you see sort of the same thing, because after, you know, using them on tens of thousands of people, you start to see a little bit of patterns and obviously everyone's an individual. And so you can't just make a blanket statement like that, but there definitely are some patterns that I've seen. So I'm wondering, do you have some go-to supplements that you think thyroid patients should really consider, or at least look at, or lab tests that they should be trying to assess for nutrient deficiencies? Like what, where do you land on that? Yeah. So the nutrients, the, the basic cores, the, the zinc, the mag, vitamin D, yes, selenium, but not too high because I see a yeah. lot of people overdo selenium all the Absolutely. time. Yeah. Um, and then uh, vitamin D, all the Bs, 
You know, yeah. I, I like a nice, you know, just a, B, a nice B complex, methylated B complex. And, mm. and iodine, I like testing iodine. I still have not landed. So I just kind of dove into iodine, really like deep dove into it this year. Mm-hmm. I interviewed um, Dr. Christensen on my mm-hmm. podcast and I heard his side. I've also heard Dr. Brownstein's side and I've read and I've, I've researched. So maybe you can jump in on the, because you're more of the research guy. Um, I think it's important. I don't quite know exactly how to test because there's so many different, like you said, there, there's serum, there's the, the challenge where you take 50 milligrams of iodorol and then do the 24-hour urine. There's a basic 24-hour urine without the challenge. So, I mean, I'll just go buy serum. I have had a couple of mm. patients do the serum and the 24-hour urine at the same time, and we kind of can compare a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but I do, I think iodine is important, just not in excess. You don't have to mm. go crazy with it, but you also don't want to avoid it. That's my take. So you'll have to mm. jump in on, on nutrients. And then, of course, like carnosine, um, Benfo. Um, I like berberine because it helps with healing of the gut and it helps mm. with insulin resistance that is probably present. So those yeah. are my like main core components, I would say. Yeah, I, I like that you get into berberine because that's honestly one of my favorite uh, ingredients. And uh, actually, complex with alpha lipoacid, I think it's incredibly powerful. Yep. Um, I talk about it a lot. And I, it's one of those things that a lot of people... I don't know that they necessarily know about it, right? I think it's like a some sort of weird plant alkaloid. I, I believe it's a botanical, yeah. yep. and um, uh, I don't remember exactly, but it, it, it's very, very good. In fact, I I love using it specifically for uh, weight loss. But like you said, it has other it has other benefits, right? Because uh, when you yeah. look at the studies, it shows it shows it simultaneously helps build lean muscle mass and burn adipose tissue, and yep. so which is a problem that almost every thyroid patient has. So um, I love berberine, and uh, if anyone takes anything away from this, get some berberine because it's, yeah. it's amazing. Um, and like you said. It has other things. It actually has uh, antifungal properties and antibacterial properties, which can help regulate gut function. Yep. Um, some cholesterol benefits. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm kind of going off the top of my head here, but uh, insulin resistance, as you mentioned, but those, you know, all of those things. So it's, it's, it's great. I, I love berberine. And a lot of people don't use it and they, they don't even know about it. Yeah. Um, so going to, to back to the iodine thing. So yeah, what, what a controversial topic. Uh, thanks for throwing, throwing me down there, but yeah. uh, no, I, I'm totally fine. No, so I, I actually don't know what those other uh, physicians that you mentioned think about this. I, 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 at least in the past, I've kind of, I've heard Dr. Brownstein's name. Um, I don't know if he's like, I don't know his specific position, but I can tell you my, and same with Dr. Christensen, but I know my position and, and it's sort of what you mentioned previously. So well, the way I look at it is this, I look at it from the, the perspective of physiology. And so we know from the physio- physiologic perspective, a couple things. Number one, iodine is required for humans. You cannot have um, sustainable life without iodine. In fact, when you look back um, uh, when, when scientists and researchers look back at humans and the evolution of humans, they're, they're always trying to figure out how does this, how does this human, this, this, you know, post, uh, whatever, you know, I don't know how many, the time frame here, but let's say millions of years ago, this, this, um, this, this human, how do they get iodine? If, if they're so far in coast, how do they get it? If we know that it's concentrated in the coast. And so they have to come up with all sorts of crazy theories on how that these people can get iodine because it's required for brain function. So we know physiologically speaking that you must have iodine. There's no getting around it. Your body cannot produce it. It must be consumed. So you have to be getting it one way or the other. So that's sort of the basics of or the basic framework under which I operate. Now, the problem is it is true that even though iodine is required, taking iodine can actually cause some problems. And so that's where I think people get confused. But what, what you end up hearing is people will say, I have an iodine allergy. You absolutely do not have an iodine allergy. It's, it's no such thing. In fact, I've, I've read a lot about the research on that. It is impossible to have an iodine allergy. Now, what you can have is you can have an, aller- an allergy to something that is complex to iodine, and that's called a haptin. And that can occur, which is probably what occurs with iodinated contrast dye. So you can have um, allergies to other things connected to iodine, but having a true allergy to iodine is impossible. In fact, it would be 
wouldn't be, uh, you wouldn't be able to exist if that were the case because iodine is required all the time right. in your thyroid gland. So there's that component that you must be getting iodine. Now, again, as I mentioned, you can't have negative reactions to it. So then how do you explain the negative reactions to it? And I believe that what ends up happening is it, that most of the negative reactions occur from a couple of reasons. Number one, because you have um, too many uh, halides inside of your body, which are being detoxified out as you take it. So yep. that would be number one. Yep. Um, and then number two would be that you don't have the right amount of um, antioxidants or, or uh, you don't have a cleanup. You don't have a way to clean up the free radicals that can be produced when iodine is used inside of the thyroid gland. So that kind of comes back to your, your previous point, which is you must be using kind of the right amount. And so uh, I think that excessively high doses can be dangerous. I think avoiding it is absolutely dangerous. And I think it's a huge cause nowadays of, of low thyroid function. Um, so I would absolutely not recommend that you 100% avoid it. Now, if you wanted to avoid it for uh, temporarily while you increase selenium levels and zinc levels and, and iron levels and so on, I think that that's a reasonable choice for maybe one or, one or two months, uh, but absolutely no longer than that. Um, and then in terms of dosing, that's where it gets complicated because I have seen, and maybe you have as well, I've seen higher doses work very well. I've yeah. seen the 12.5 milligram dose you know, cause significant benefits to people and yeah. where they have low thyroid function, they take this iodine and they're like, I'm better again. I'm like, well, okay. So high dose iodine has some merit. Um, now where, where, and when it's used, that's a whole nother story. So I, I, what do you think? Do you see a benefit in, in using the higher doses of iodine? Like, or do you stick to the low doses? Like what, what do you think about that? So even when we go to actual high doses, according to Dr. Brownstein, that's 50 milligrams. So he yeah, that, that's real high. All the way, that's high. Yeah. So 12.5, I would say, is right in the middle. Mm -hmm. And, and I'll, I'll have people start off just slow. So especially if we're using something like a Lugol's, um, yeah. just start with like two drops of the 2% solution and work your way up. And then once you get up higher and you're at 12.5 and that's your kind of riding it out dose, then you can switch to an iodorol tablet at 12.5 or take a supplement that has, you know, 12.5, 10,000 or 12,000 um, micrograms, 10 to 12 milligrams per tablet, something like, I mean, that, I think that's the perfect dose. I think that's just that perfect. And then the, there will be cases where people do need a little bit more. Maybe we go to 25, maybe we start to climb up higher, mm -hmm. but most people are really, really good at 12.5. Yeah, I think I, yeah, I, t I tend to personally not to like go, to go too much higher than 12.5 milligrams. And just for reference, so like for those people listening, um, one milligram, when we say 25 milligrams, so one milligram is 1000 micrograms. So the, the RDA, which is, you know, kind of the set dose that, that the governmental in institutions recommend is somewhere between 150 and 270 if you're breastfeeding or lactating or um, pregnant, right? Because that you need more iodine in that case. And so when we're talking about 150 to 250 micrograms versus uh, 25 milligrams, that's an order of magnitude much higher. So it'd be 25,000 um, micrograms. So this dose is significantly higher than what people recommend. And yet I do see improvement at that level. Now, what I will say, and this is sort of my argument is, even though it is true that some people do get better when they're taking it, the, the risk versus reward may not be there for those really high doses. And what right. I mean is you, there's, it might be a good chance that you do get better, but there might be an equally bad chance that you get worse or trigger Hashimoto's or trigger more inflammatory conditions inside the thyroid gland. So yeah. my recommendation generally is unless you're being supported by somebody, you know, like, like you or somebody else, or, you, you know, you can talk to, talk to that person. Don't just go crazy on the iodine. Uh, in fact, I literally just had, uh, I think I mentioned this in one of my more recent videos, but I had a, a doctor I went to residency with a physician friend of mine he sent me an email about somebody who was taking hundred milligrams. So really, oh. really, really high doses. Yeah. I, I didn't even know people were using that high. So, right. and anyway, he ends up with a TSH of, of 12 or 14, something like that. A high TSH is higher than what you want it to be. 
uh, obviously. And um, so, and it, you, it tracks perfectly because he was getting his labs chested during this time. And so as he was going up on his iodine, his TSH was getting higher and higher. So you can see these sort of things happen. So just be very, very cautious with the higher doses of iodine, lower doses of iodine. Um, I don't think are necessarily a problem, but if you really want to really be sure, then just make sure that you have a sufficient amount of, um, uh, that you take care of those nutrients that we talked about previously. And if you do that, I think you'll be okay. So that's sort of where I sit on the whole iodine thing. That's an abbreviated version. Obviously I, I have more in depth videos if people want to kind of look into that, but I don't, I don't get too wrapped up in it. I know people get really into the iodine controversy. To me, it seems like a, a one piece of, let's say a, a larger problem, which is thyroid problems. And so that's just one element. I, I, I don't, I don't see the idea of getting so scooped up into it other than I think people, there's this idea out there that if people optimize iodine, that maybe that will cure their thyroid. And so I think people get locked in that, that mindset. Um, right. I'm not exactly sure why I've never been upset, like really into the iodine aspect of it, but I, that's my best guess. Yeah. I mean, I do see reverse C3 go up with low iodine. I can see mm -hmm. that connection for sure, but yeah. I'm with you. Let's not get wrapped up in the controversy. If we just find that middle ground, find the middle ground, it'll probably work in most cases where there's two extremes. Mm -hmm. So, and that can be said for all of life, right? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> find the middle. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I, I think that that's well said. Right. And I think, I think that, um, you can't confuse, uh, the forest for the trees, right? I think you need to, I think you need to keep track of what you're trying to do here. And I think at the end of the day, um, that is trying to feel better. And so I think, I think that thyroid patients, and one of the things that I, I always want to make sure, and I don't think I do a good job of this. So I, I really want to make sure I say this now, but I think that thyroid patients don't have to be neglected. They don't have to live this life of misery. And I think sometimes that's projected onto thyroid patients through the things that they read or the people or what the resources that they look at and so on. And, and honestly, I, I think that the outlook can be difficult for a thyroid patient because they are facing a lot of struggles, right. but I think at the end of the day, it, it's absolutely possible. And the goal should always be to get back to 100% health or as close to possible as you can get. And I do think that that is, is definitely possible. I've seen it to be the case. Um, I guess I'd ask, I guess I, how do you feel? Like you're somebody who has had, you're taking T3, you have low thyroid function. Um, do you feel like you're back to 100%? And, and is that a goal that you take? Or what, how do you think about that when you're treating people? I do. Like, I feel like, and, and I say the same thing that you just did. You don't, it's not your fault. You right. don't have to suffer. Just even, even if you were told by 10 doctors that you're normal, you're fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. Or that, I mean, I've even heard some docs tell people, well, you're just going to have to get used to living this way. You're just going to have to get used to it. And that's my message I give all the time. No, you don't. You don't. There is something that we can do, whether it is change diet, improve sleep, change lifestyle, decrease stress, support your adrenals. Let's look at nutrient function. Or let, you know, let's focus on thyroid and hormones. There's something that we can do to improve because doctors always miss those four words. How do you feel? Like, mm -hmm. let's ask them actually how they feel before we treat them like a set of labs. The labs are great. I mean, you and I both love lab work. Mm -hmm. Like, give me labs all day long, but right. then give me the person talking about their symptoms and how they feel. Yeah. And I think you brought up a really good point. Uh, actually, I, I, I think that doesn't get talked about enough. And I, there's a lot of people who I see, especially thyroid patients, and they'll, they'll get their labs, right? And because we'll, they'll read these blog posts, it'll say, you need reverse T3 and free T3 and free T4 and TSH and, uh, you know, yada, yada, sex hormone binding globules and everything yep. you need. And so they'll get them and then they'll, they'll be like, I, okay, problem solved. I have my labs. Here they are. And they'll just sort of throw them out there and be like, yeah, here, what do I do now? And I'm like, 
it's really not quite that simple. Now, labs are important, absolutely, but they must be attached to the clinical picture. And I think people forget that part of it. They think that the labs are the end-all be-all. It's like, no, the labs are really just the beginning. Um, the labs without clinical context don't really give you much information. Uh, in fact, you could have, I've had some people with higher TSH than, than what I recommend people have, but they feel great. And so I don't see the point in treating something if clinically they're the same. In fact, when I was in residency, there was sort of this rule. Um, and I remember we had some, I had some really wise doctors teach to me, but they, and this gets abused obviously in the medical system and I'll explain in just a second, but they would say, um, don't order a test unless you know what to do with the result. And so that, I think that's a big problem with a lot of doctors because right. they, they don't want to order your reverse T3 because when it comes back abnormal, they have no idea what to do with it. Right. Right. They're going to be like, well, I'm not. so you see a lot of pushback from doctors for this very reason. Now it can obviously be used as a, as a dodge to stick your head in the sand and be like, well, if I don't know what's there, then I don't have to treat it. Yeah. And that's a liability issue for doctors. But um, I think that the main thing I wanted to, to express here is that there is a correlation or not even a correlation, but it's necessary to, to combine the clinical picture, meaning how you're feeling with those thyroid lab tests that you are getting. Um, and if you do not do that, if you're just trying to throw out the labs and treat based off the labs, you will, it, you may get lucky. You may get lucky and feel a little bit better, but yeah. it's not as easy as you think. Um, and that kind of actually leads me to a topic that I'd love to get your opinion on. Uh, something that I've been trying to trying to talk about to, with some with some other people, but it seems that uh, I don't. Maybe I'm alone in this, but I find that there's this there's this push, and even for me, uh, I'm guilty of doing this. But to talk about optimal thyroid lab tests, so you know you, you probably know what I'm talking about, right? Free yeah. T3, yep. it should be within this range, and free T4, this range, and TSH, yep. and so on. So I, I do think there's some merit to those ideas, but but I have seen plenty of people, my wife included, by the way, which I can I can talk about if, if there's any interest in that. But I I like for and for instance for her free T3 level, I mean it could be as high as 10 or 12, and yep. I'm not worried about it at all. Right? It's way above the reference range. Yes. Um, but she's feeling great. So there is this there's this. Um, this disconnect between these optimal thyroid lab tests and sometimes how people are feeling. And I think that that can kind of get, kind of get a little confusing for thyroid patients. So I guess what I would ask you is, do you see this sort of thing, same thing? Or are you somebody that's like, really like, no, if the, the free T3 must be optimized along with the free T4 within this, this range, like, how do you think about that? With your um, lab test. I love, love that you asked this. This is so great. And yeah, we, we, yeah, we need to talk about your, about your wife too, because her and I are very similar T3 only very similar. Mm -hmm. We tanked our thyroids through different mm -hmm. choices earlier in life. And, um, I, I do better with my free T3 usually at like a five or a six. Um, so I, I can, I can pull off a four. I, I had it tested after Christmas and went through a lot of stress and I was a caretaker for my mom. So yeah, I was on that other side Whew. and yeah. it, it went down a little bit, but I still felt okay. If, if I were to show an endo, these labs, they would they freak. freak out. Yeah. They would call me hyper. They would pull my meds. Then I would go into a hypo state. Yeah, I, I say, and, and you know, a lot of people even get hung up on T4. And mm -hmm. it's like, I really don't care if that goes lower. Mm -hmm. If your free T3 is good wherever your optimal is, you know, I always say there's optimal and then there's your optimal. Right. And, and, so, and you're feeling okay. If you're telling me you're feeling good and your free T4 is a 0.8, I'm not going to up your T4. Like, no, mm -hmm. let's just keep riding what we're doing because you feel good. I'm so happy you brought that up. So what do you see like in, in labs that are wonky, but the person is feeling great? Yeah, I would say one of the most common um, is, well, so a couple things. So, so number one, I think what you hit the nail on the head. So if you, depending on which type of medication that you're using, you, you may see, uh, you know, large or high levels of free T3. Um, and I don't think you necessarily need to freak out about that. Like, like, and I think 
uh, you said your level was what between five and six. Is that kind of where you're? That's my the, happy. Yeah. That's, that's kind of where you like level, to be. Yeah. So I think uh, depending on which lab you're using, as far, as far as I remember, I think the level was like I don't know, one point five to four point five, something yep. like that, right? So yep. you're getting flagged as high, right? Yep. Okay, just so we're on the same page. Yeah. So same with my wife. So she was getting flagged in the ten to twelve range as high. Right. Now, as as she was saying, if you if an endocrinologist saw that, they would get freaked out and they would say, you are absolutely hyperthyroid. You're destroying your body. You're going to have osteoporosis and atrial fibrillation yeah. and so on, right? right? But you can you can check for these things. It doesn't have to be something that you worry about, especially by checking your resting pulse, your resting heart rate. Um, if you were really worried about it, you could look at um, the size of your heart because the only way you would get atrial fibrillation uh, is if you have enlargement to the heart and that changes the, the, the structure of the heart and that changes how it pumps. Um, and then same thing with your bones. If you really wanted to check and see if you were uh, getting osteoporosis, product, you could get a DEXA scan. So there really is no reason to, cons to overly freak out about these things. Um, you know, with, especially since they're checkable. Now that's number one. Number two is there's only a slight increased risk of developing these things. There's no guarantee. So, and nobody even knows what that is, by the way. So it could, it could be that your risk just living is less, I'm just making this up, but let's say your risk of getting atrial fibrillation is 1%, which it's probably pretty accurate. Um, just because, just because we don't know why you just get it at 1% of the population does, or, or it could be higher, but just go with me on that. Now let's say that you have a free T3, uh, free T3 in the four to six, or five to six range. Okay. Well, maybe your risk is higher, but maybe that risk is uh, one and a half percent instead of one. Now, would you rather take that, that half percent increased risk and have improved metabolism and get back to a normal weight? and have all these benefits, I think most people would. So yeah. I don't really get too concerned about uh, free T3s being elevated in the absence of hyperthyroid symptoms. And if the patient, like in your case, you know, you or anybody else, as long as they understand the potential risks involved with that and how, you know, you should follow up getting an echocardiogram to look at the structure of the heart, getting a DEXA scan to look at bone density. So there's that component. Um, so that kind of brings me to your former question, which is that I see high levels of free T3, which I don't get too concerned about always. Sometimes it is a problem, but not always. The other thing that I see people get really hung up on, um, and, and by the way, that kind of also goes with the suppressed TSH, uh, yep. the suppressed TSH yep. high free T3 level. Um, the other thing that I see a lot of people get that they really get, um, they get zoned in on is uh, free T4 level. So what they want is they want both their free T3 and free T4 to be in this top 30% of the range. And I've yep. seen people jump through all sorts of hoops to try and get them within this range. Now, I don't really see uh, a lot of benefit to focusing on free T4 at the expense of free T3. Now, Correct. if you if you want to get your free T4 up and you feel better with your free T4 up, okay, fine, whatever. But if you're trying to force your free T4 up because you're, let's say you're taking NDT um, and so you're on, let's say uh, just two grains, I'm just making this up, but let's say you're on two grains and so your free T3 goes high, but your free T4 goes low, low but you're freaking out. So you're trying to take more level thyroxine to push you up. There, I don't, you're playing a weird game there of numbers without actually looking just at how you're feeling clinically and symptomatically. So I see this, this discordance between free T3 and free T4, especially when free T3 is high and free T4 is low, that people really get, um, not everybody, but some people really get zoned in on that. And then of course the high free T3 level um, and the low TSH. So people get really concerned about those. But as I mentioned, if you're, if you're, um, if you're focusing on them and you, you're really concerned, then just get a DEXA scan, get an echocardiogram so you can look at those, those, those functions, uh, the heart function as well as uh, the, the density of your bones. So I don't think you need to get worried about that. One other point worth mentioning too is, um, is, is a premenopausal women. So when we talk a lot about thyroid patients, premenopausal women are virtually immune to bone-related problems. I have never seen, in fact, I've looked at a lot of research. I've never seen a study show that a premenopausal woman, meaning somebody who is still menstruating, um, uh, have problems with bone density 
and probably even the heart, although I, I haven't seen any, I haven't looked at that specifically, but I've never seen anyone with osteoporosis, a premenopausal woman, regardless of whatever their TSH is. It seems that you could just drop that to, you know, essentially as close to zero as possible. And you're still essentially immune from developing that. Now, once you become menopausal, that's a different story because estrogen provides a very protective benefit to both the heart and the bones. So that's, that's kind of how I look at it. I don't get too worried if you're, if you're younger. Um, and I, and again, I think it's a risk versus reward thing. If you can help somebody, let's say lose 50 pounds, when they're 35 or 40 or 30, I mean, what is the benefit of that weight loss for over the next 30 years, right? Yeah. That's, that's a huge benefit to that person. Not only that, not only like uh, physiologically, but also mentally, you know, weight is, weight is a terrible, terrible burden, I think, to carry. Uh, it's yeah. not one that I personally have struggled with, but I have seen it from other people. And so um, I think that, uh, anyway, that, that's kind of, it's a risk versus reward thing is kind of how I look at these lab tests and, and, and management and things like that. So I don't know, do you, do you kind of take a similar approach or what are your thoughts on that? Oh, no doubt. I mean, you would have to pry the T3 out of my dead cold hands. I love T3. Before, <laughs> before I would give that up just to increase my, or decrease my risk of by 0.5% or whatever. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I made that I mean, number up, but but it's probably yeah. like, I, I don't know, maybe it's 3% or 2%, but I doubt it's 50. It's not like, you know, it's not this huge increase. So yeah, no, it's about it. quality of life. I mean, you want to be able to live life. So you mentioned TSH. How, what is your optimal range? Because I've heard you talk about this on your podcast. What is your mm -hmm. optimal range of TSH? And are you okay with it going low? Because probably your wife, myself, there's no way we can get our TSH back up to 0.5 like yeah, it's always going to be 0. 0.00 something yeah so i i would say a couple things about that um now generally i think if uh, the, from the data that i've looked at and and just personal experience and and, and helping people i tend to th have to have seen that a low tsh tends to not be associated with any problems so you can have a low but non-suppressed tsh and then you can have a suppressed tsh and these are two separate things so suppressed uh, basically just means that the, the tsh is so small that it can't be recognized. The, the computer analysis is just like, I don't know, it's, it's some, some value less than 0 0.001. We don't know, it could be 0 0.00001 or 0 0.0 plus 20 zeros in one, right? It's just so low that we can't even quantify it. That's one thing, that's called a suppressed TSH. The other thing is just having a low TSH. So you could have a low but not suppressed TSH that gets flagged as low. Now, when you look at low TSHs, so I think the range is like usually 0.45 to 4.5. So if you flagged as a 0.44 or a 0.40, you would get a low flag uh, but you would have a non-suppressed but low TSH. Now, when you look at people who have these low TSH levels, I don't see any risk of atrial fibrillation, osteoporosis, or anything like that I, from the studies I've looked at. It isn't until you start to get to that suppressed range that then you even have to consider or worry about it. So what my general recommendation is uh, aim for, if you need to aim for the low and, and if you do want to become suppressed, I think that that is usually okay. In many instances, don't just do it willy nilly and definitely don't just do it by yourself. But if you are going to do that, then I think it becomes prudent for you to then start looking at your bone density as well as cardiac function. Now it's very unlikely that you're going to have problems in these areas, but if you're going to do this, and you know that there's a slight increased risk, we don't know what that risk is, but at least pay attention to it. At least look at heart function and echocardiogram, get, get your bone density scan. And then if you start seeing changes, well, then you can go back up and you can reduce your dose. And maybe, maybe at that point, it's not worth your risk. So that kind of talks about the low, but non-suppressed. Now, in terms of reference ranges, I'm actually a big fan of using the pregnancy uh, TSH levels. I don't know if you've ever heard that argument before. No, but if you, go ahead. Yeah, it's, 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 it seems so, so obvious to me when I, when I uh, found out this out, I don't know, a couple of years ago, but there's a whole nother set of ranges for pregnant women and, and for TSH levels. And so what, what's funny is that in the medical world, 
pregnant women are, are like, everybody is so afraid to mess with a pregnant woman because they're so afraid of having a problem with, with the fetus or the child. And so they use, they are so overly uh, uh, cautious with them that I know that if someone was recommending a low TSH, which by the way, it's like 0.1 to I think 1.0 or 0.5 or something like that is the recommended pregnancy TSH level. So if you're, if you're willing to suppress a, or to make your, the TSH low in a pregnant woman who is already at increased risk, increased liability for all the other issues, then why would you not apply that more generally and broadly to all people, right? So that's sort of like, that, that's sort of the logic that I use. So I prefer to look at the pregnancy ranges. I have the blog post that talks about those ranges. They're based off trimesters, first, second, and third. Um, off the top of my head, I don't remember them exactly, but I think they're like, I think it's like a 0.1 TSH to uh, maybe like a 0.5, which again would flag you as low for most of that range if you were another healthy uh, adult. So if you want to look at those specifically, you can. But I think if you're within those range, if it's good enough for a pregnant woman, I think it's good enough for most people. That's kind of my philosophy. Right. Because right. there's no way that a doctor would give an experimental drug to a pregnant woman. No way. And so if they, yeah, if they thought that it was going to cause any harm, they'd be like, nope, no way. It's not worth it. And that's because they're so scared of liability. So again, if, if it makes sense for, for them to do it to the to pregnant women, I think it makes sense for, for most women or men, even for that matter as well. So that's sort of my philosophy on TSH. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. What, what, do you have a range that you prefer that you think works best for people? Like, what do you think about that? No, I'm the same as you. It's, it, and, and I find if someone is on, I mean, we see this with T4, but more so whenever T3 is in the mix, whether it's NDT or Cytomel, Leo coming mm -hmm. in, that's gonna push the TSH down. So it's right. almost like to a point where I don't even really pay attention to it that much. I'll glance at it, but it doesn't, I mean, it, it'll, it'll come into play if let's say someone actually is in a hyper state and they're free T3 and free T4 through the roof and they're anxious and they're jittery and they have insomnia right. and all that that goes along with it, they're losing weight. But uh, but most of the time, I don't even pay attention to it. It's like, oh yeah, it's low. And then you take the the thyroid cancer patients that had you know thyroidectomies, radioactive iodine. Great you point. want to keep their TSH low. So there's another argument. You have the pregnancy argument. Then you have the the thyroidectomy patient argument or post cancer, uh, post thyroid cancer patient, where we want to keep that TSH low, if not suppressed, mm -hmm. to reduce the regrowth of the tissues. So again, if we could do it in them. Okay, so we're going to roll the dice in them and in pregnant women, but not in the normal population. Right. It doesn't even make sense. I, that, I totally forgot about that, but that's 100% true. And I, I need to use that more as an argument because you're right. So if I could just elaborate just real quick, I, yeah. I, I know we're probably running short on time here. But um, so what, what she was saying is that, uh, that in th people who have had thyroid cancer, they intentionally suppress their TSH after their thyroid has been removed. And the reason is simple. The TSH stands for thyroid stimulating hormone. The last thing you would want to have happen in a patient with thyroid cancer is to leave a little bit of tissue, right? Because no matter how good your surgeon is, there's always going to be a little bit of tissue left over. And then to have a little bit of that tissue be sensitive to this TSH, the TSH comes and stimulates the thyroid cancer to grow, in which case you have a worse scenario than you did originally, because it's going to be hard to detect because there's no gland there. So it's going to grow and get much larger. So endocrinologists know this. So what they do is they intentionally suppress the TSH. So your body's no longer producing that thyroid stimulating hormone. And they do that by giving excessive medication. So the argument is, if you're willing to do that in a cancer patient, why would you not be willing to do it in other places? And by the way, where's the data showing all the cancer patients who have suppressed TSHs have high levels of atrial fibrillation and so on. And by the way, you're, you're making 
the, the uh, risk versus reward on behalf of the cancer patient without even really talking about them. Because what you're saying is, I'm really okay with you having a slight increased risk of osteoporosis and atrial fibrillation, if they exist, for the, the benefit of you not having that thyroid cancer come back, right? That's really the risk versus reward thing that they're, that they're taking. Now, why doesn't that exist for somebody who is, let's say, a 45-year-old woman who is 50 to 70 pounds overweight and would rather have that slight increased risk, but be a normal weight and have more energy levels and be able to you know, play with their children and grandkids and so on, right? Probably not grandkids at 45, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I, I, that's kind of, I think it needs to be thought of in those terms. And I think a, that would be a better discussion as opposed to just saying TSH suppression, always bad, all the time, never do it. Also right. be scared of it. I just, I really don't like that argument. I think, it, I think it's a bad argument. And I've never heard anybody um, counter those arguments, at least yet. So I don't know. Because I, I know some people are anti-suppressing the TSH, but what is the argument? What, what is the logic behind that? I, I, don't, I don't know where that argument stems from. That's true. Yeah, they'll say their point, basically, basically what they learned in med school, right? And then yeah. they won't back that up. So, I mean, since you were there, my, my last question for you, since you mm -hmm. were in med school and you went through all this, why don't they give you like six months of thyroid training because it is the master gland. I mean, you've seen it in, in all of your work. If you fix that, if you balance that out, all of a sudden, hey, cholesterol numbers look better. Insulin mm -hmm. comes down. Oh, look at that. People are feeling better. Their blood pressure is coming down. Oh, they don't need that antidepressant. Why don't they spend more time on the thyroid? I wish I had a good answer for you. I don't know. Um, yeah. You know, what's funny though, is, is there's a, a discordance between thyroid physiology and the practice of medicine. And so, and this exists in a lot of places, by the way, in medicine as well. So I remember having discussions. And the thing is, when you're a first year medical student and you're learning about physiology and anatomy, it's just being thrown at you at such a rapid rate that it's sort of like, you know, a lot of it goes over your head. I mean, you're memorizing it and you're, you're answering questions on tests and so on. But some of it is just so esoteric that it's just flying over your head. And you're like, I don't know what's talk I don't know what's going on here. But we did talk a lot about thyroid function. I remember having that physiology class where we were saying, this is what T4 does. This is what T3 does. This is the conversion of T4 to T3. This is the, the, the enzymes which catalyze this reaction and so on. So we talked about the physiology of it. The problem is the breakdown between the physiology to clinical practice. And this happens quite a bit. Right? So you have an over, oversimplification of a very complex physiologic system into something that's just relegated to checking the TSH and then treating with level thyroxine. So it, I think the disconnect is between is this gap, is uh, physiology to, to practice. And I tend to live more in the physiology area. Like I like to look at you know, what is happening at the cellular level with thyroid function. What, how is T4 going to T3? What nutrients are required for, uh, to catalyze the reaction between T4 and T3? Now, do people have deficiencies in that reaction and so on? That, I think, is the... Well, I, I mean, I'm biased here, but that's how I think the best way to look at it is because if yeah. you just look at it at, at the other end and say, well, the TSH and level thyroxine, that's all you need for this in incredibly complex system, yeah. which took us, you know, hours to learn about. But at the end of the day, it gets distilled down to this. It's, that just seems like a, a cop out um, now. But I don't again, I don't have a good answer for you other than it's just dogma and dogma is incredibly hard to break. So it's hard to change. And it exists in a lot of other places in medicine and even sciences. Um, you know, breaking that dogma is is so, so, so difficult. And uh, there's this infamous, infamous study that I cite all the time. And it says that basically it takes about 17 years for current research to make it into the hands of, of doctors. So if research came out, what are we, uh, 2021, it's, it's dangerous doing math, but let's say, so research that came out in 2004, 
is now finally being practiced by doctors in 2021, right? That's the length of time it takes for, for the actual science to be practiced. So people will look at you and I and they'll be like, well, if, if this were really true, my doctor would be doing it. No, not, no, not really. There's, in fact, there's a very high chance they wouldn't. And the thing is, is a lot of people, I've been on the other end. So I know that doctors, they don't have, they're not reading medical journals. They're not doing what we do. We have to, we, we have to read, we have to understand, we have to experiment, we have to do these things. So if anything, we're, it's gonna be many, many years before they catch up. The soonest is 17. And then that doesn't even count the fact that you have this massive force in the form of level thyroxine and synthroid and pharmaceutical companies trying oh, yeah. to discredit all of this information to say, no, this isn't correct. Like, don't listen to this. It's, it's going to be level thyroxine and TSH for the next 50 years. And then on the other end, you've got all these thyroid patients who are screaming, suffering, and you know, all these surveys that I, that I link to all the time and talk about just how unhappy thyroid patients are. And it's like, what is happening? I, I don't understand it completely. I just, I just am in the middle of this, trying to wade through it and figure out what is going on between the doctors, the pharmaceutical companies, the thyroid patients, and then everything in between. So I, I wish I had a good answer for you. I don't know. No, that was pretty good though. I mean, I'll expand just a little bit, but um, I gave a talk to a group of integrative physicians mm -hmm. and they, I, we talked about the, the testing, why not test, you know, free T3 versus T3 and getting out of the Synthroid box. Yeah. And I would say, you guys are in the Synthroid box, right? If you have a, a patient that is depressed, you'll try this antidepressant and that doesn't work. You'll try another one. If that doesn't work, you'll try two of them and we'll tag on an, an anti-anxiety med. Exactly. But, yeah. Thyroid, you have one thing. You're in the synthroid box. The one doc raises his hand and goes, that's all we've learned. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's unfortunately and true. Thank you for the honesty. Yeah. But yeah, it seems like, and I have heard the theory that, like you said, pharmaceutical companies like synthroid kind of donate to med schools, who knows, and kind of yeah. nudge, nudge, make sure you teach about T4 only and mm -hmm. using synthroid. I mean, who knows? I mean, there's a million different theories that we could go into down a rabbit mm -hmm. hole, but, but yeah, I mean, that's what docs are being taught. So it's almost kind of like you, you can blame them, but not blame them. You got to come out of med school and do your own research. Like you have, you can't just stick with what you learn in med school. I also heard one great med school professor stand up and say to the graduating class in three years, 50% of what you learned here will be obsolete. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they taught us that too in medical school as well. And so, yeah. but, but the problem is it's not, it's not countered by a lot of uh, heavy research. And, and in fact, I, I did a podcast with, an, with another, uh, he's an MD and uh, he's, he's a good friend of mine. He practices, but he was in the conventional world for like 20 years. Yeah. And so we, we talked a lot about this um, and kind of what happens on the other end. And it's, it's not as sinister or conspiratorial as people might think. It's just that the majority of the money comes from pharmaceutical companies and they're the ones funding the research. And so no pharmaceutical company, it's this simple, no pharmaceutical company is going to pay I don't know, let's just say $50 million to check if zinc and selenium and iodine in combination with each other is greater than level thyroxine. They right. have nothing to gain from that study. The only thing that they can gain from that, it, it, or the worst, the best case scenario is that it shows nothing. Worst case scenario is that it shows that zinc, selenium, and iodine are more effective than level thyroxine. I mean, I don't think that would happen, but think about what they have to gain from that. Who else is going to be putting $50 million into it to test something like that? It's just not right. going to happen. And so people are like, well, I'll use it when it's tested. I'm like, you're never going to use it then. I mean, there's going to be a lot of other people who are feeling better and they're doing, you know, the thing that maybe their doctor didn't say, but they, people are just so dead set on following their endocrinologist or doctor. And I mean, you know, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. Uh, I just think that there's different ways to look at this. And so I, I get frustrated with that sort of mentality because, I, you know, I, again, I don't think it's conspiratorial. I don't think there's anything sinister going on in the background. I think it's just a simple money game. I think it's just, that's what gets the funding and that's yeah. where we're at. Yeah. And, and then our job is just to bring the information to the people and try to guide them and help them and kind of think outside of the box and, mm -hmm. and do the research to present the information that is out there that can help you.
mm-hmm. simple things like zinc, selenium, and, and iodine, actually. Yeah. What are your thyroid? So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, this has been great. I mean, I, I've enjoyed this so much. Like I said, for, I mean, I've been listening to your podcast and we just, we sound so much alike. You're like my male doppelganger in the thyroid world. Yeah. So I, I, I love doing this. This is great. Yeah, it was actually a lot of fun. I, I, I'm trying to remember all the things that we talked about, the, the long stream of conversation topics that led us here. But um, yeah, we talked a lot about uh, weight loss, weight gain, reverse T3, thyroid lab testing, cortisol, um, and then also just you know, the problem, I guess, with um, uh, lab tests and TSH suppression and so on. But yeah, we had a really good conversation. So thank you so much for inviting me. I, it, was, it was really enjoyable for me as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. We will have to do it again. Let's do it.